morning. What is it that you understand to be the purpose of your life? If somebody was to ask you what the purpose of your life was, where would you go with that? What would you say? What's the purpose of our life? Is it to pursue uh, our own personal sort of happiness? Is that kind of the purpose of a human being's life? Or, or what about maybe something slightly different to that? Would you say the purpose of my life is actually to be a success at what it is that I'm doing? Whether it's studying, if you're a student just now, or whether it's in the workplace, whatever it is, maybe it's even raising a family, protecting a family. What would you say? What about if you're a Christian? How are you going to answer that question? What would you say the purpose of your life is as a Christian? What is it? I mean, is it to live in a certain way? Like in a, a sort of, with a sort of moral, ethical outlook? Is that it? Or is it, would you just say, no, 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 the purpose of life, you know, the purpose of my life is to glorify God, of course. And if so, you know you're going to get another question. And that is, well, how? Let's begin this morning like this. Let's begin with an assertion. If you're a Christian believer this morning, then one of the great purposes of your life just now, it is to be making disciples and seeing people baptized into the name of a triune God. That's your purpose. Do you see it? Put it another way. If you're a Christian just now, one of the great purposes on your life today is to be taking the good news of the gospel and sharing it with this dead, dark, and dying world. How do you feel about that? I fully accept. I fully accept that that is not a popular thing to say. Isn't it true? You know, as Christians, when we hear, oh no, it's a sermon on evangelism and witness, and we sort of recoil a little bit, and we we don't like this very much. But this is... Friends, what I suggest we do this morning, I suggest we approach this topic very differently. Like I suggest that this morning, what we seek to do in here is to try and wipe the slate clean. You know, to to try in the power of the Holy Spirit to approach this as though you and I today were resolving from this point forward to try again with this idea of sharing the gospel. Now, why? Well, what are we dealing with? What have we got in front of us this morning? We've actually got two things, two sections of scripture there, don't we? Did you notice that? In one, you've got Jesus sharing the good news with his hometown. In the other one, you've got the disciples being sent out to share the good news with the surrounding towns and villages. Do you see what ties them together? Do you see what God's doing here? In both of those, God is showing you and me lessons about witnessing for Jesus. So here's what I suggest. This morning, we consider those lessons that God has given us, resolving to begin a new chapter in speaking of Christ. That's the plan. So here's the thing. You can do one of two things for me. One, you can pick up your Bible. Two, you can switch on your Bible, um, but have scripture in front of you as we look at these lessons from God. So turn back with me to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, and let's look at these verses together. 
So lessons that God's given us here about sharing our faith, you know, sharing the news of salvation. Okay, what are these lessons that God teaches us here? Okay, here's the first one. We prepare for gospel rejection. You got it? We prepare for gospel rejection. And and everyone goes, well, this is not a particularly positive way to begin a, <laughs> begin a sermon. What was that? You know, prepare for gospel rejection. But what we're dealing with are expectations here, aren't we? Like, if you and I are serious about this, you know, if we're actually engaging with this and we're thinking, okay, maybe we will turn over a new leaf and, and witnessing, well, then wait a minute, what should we expect to happen? Like this week we go out and we actually try to share the gospel with somebody else. Like what, what response are we going to get? What's going to happen there? What might happen there? Well, what have we got here in scripture? Well, you'll, you'll notice, I suppose, that we've just left this section that we've been in for quite a few weeks where Jesus has been ministering in and around where? Capernaum, right? And he's sort of been in and around the Sea of Galilee, hasn't he? East side of Galilee, west side of Galilee, so forth. Now you'd noticed, I'm sure, when Ijidai was reading it out, that the location and the setting has changed, hasn't it, in Mark chapter 6? You see that? See what happens? Like Jesus leaves that area behind. He goes up into the hill country. Now he travels quite a distance, actually. Travels into, where? His hometown, into Nazareth where he was sort of brought up. And he goes into town, goes in there, goes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach and he begins to preach. Now, the noticeable feature of that, this whole first section, is of course the reaction that Jesus receives, isn't it? Isn't that it? Like the reaction that Jesus receives from the, that's the, that's the overarching theme of that first section. The response that he receives from his fellow Nazarenes. What, what reaction did he get? Do you see it? Like, they're, 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 they're amazed. They know this guy. Like, they've seen this guy around the town for years. And what? Not only now is he preaching in the synagogue. What's this? He's preaching with authority. He's preaching with power. Now, here's the thing. We can make a real mistake with this. Like, don't make this mistake. Don't mistake their amazement for faith. I mean, you see that it's not. Like, they're amazed at what's going on in the synagogue. But, they absolutely hate what's going on, don't they? I mean, you see that, do you? Like, they, they know this guy, and they're, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is the guy that did a few carpentry jobs for me a couple of years back, and we used to hang out with this guy's brothers. What's this? You know, who's he be standing up in front of us, and what's this message? And do you see what happens here? Like, this sort of rejection, this sort of hatred of this scenario, it builds until Mark says, do you notice it? The end of verse 3, that he can, Mark can actually say of the whole town, like he can say, en masse, what happened? Those people, they took offense at Jesus. Don't you think that's an incredible thought? His own people, man alive, you know, like his, his extended network, his friends, the people he grew up with, his hometown, universally, they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Isn't it remarkable? Okay, so you've got Nazareth here rejecting Jesus. But I'm sure as well, you're thinking, oh, come on, there's, there's a phrase here that's got to be dealt with. <laughs> there's a phrase that has to be dealt with. Look at verse 5. It says, Scripture tells us, Jesus could not do any miracles in Nazareth. Uh, now, there was me thinking that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. Aren't you with me? You know, we're thinking, well, hang on, Jesus is all powerful. Like Jesus can do, ab- you know, this Jesus. Uh, there was me thinking, an almighty, all powerful God amongst man. And what does it say? Jesus could not do any miracles in Nazareth. What does that mean? Hmm? I'll tell you what, you answer the question for me. You, you answer this question. See, in his earthly ministry, when Jesus performed a miracle, what was he doing? Like, why did Jesus heal people? Like, we've seen a, a lot of miracles in the last few weeks. What was Jesus doing? What was his purpose in those miracles? What was it? Like, does he heal someone so that, let's think about this, like, follow with me here. Does he heal someone so that they might believe in him? Is that it? Like, does he sort of expel a demon or do something like that so that, all oh, right, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow you. And I'm, is that what's going on there? Do you think that's what's going on there? Because it's not. Understand this. Jesus only performed miracles in the presence of existing faith. Do you get it? Like Jesus didn't perform a miracle to lead someone into faith. He performed a miracle to strengthen, to fortify faith. So now, do you understand the phrase? You know, that Jesus could not do miracles in others. It doesn't so much mean that Jesus was unable. Of course it doesn't mean that. It means that in Nazareth, Jesus was unwilling to perform miracles. Why? Why? Think about it. In Nazareth, there was no faith to confirm. Now, come on. You and I, we look at Jesus in Nazareth just now. Don't you see that there's a lesson that we can learn? Would you not agree with me that we're kind of naive? Christians can be naive when it comes to witnessing for Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that truth? Like I mean that primarily of myself. I hold my hand up there 100%. This is how it was when I became a Christian. I became a Christian. <laughs> and in the days after coming to faith in Jesus, this is what I believed. I believed that every single one of my friends... I believe that a whole uh, extended network of friends, I believe that they would all become Christians in the coming days. I believe that. And I tell you this, I believe that was an absolute certain. That was a formality. And it was going to be awesome. You know, like I had it sort of mapped out of which guy I was going to, I was going to save them. That's how I was looking at it. I was going to, right, he's going to be saved first. Then he's going to, then what will do? Yeah, let's set up a big church. That's what I no idea what the church would be called, but all these losers and all these dropouts, everyone was going to be saved. What does it sound like? Does it sound naive? Does it sound stupid? But isn't it the case that an element of that can remain? 
perhaps especially for the children. Perhaps especially for those who are perhaps young in faith. We go through Mark's gospel and we see Jesus, his power over nature. We see his power over death and maybe we're thinking, see this, this idea of salvation and leading the people of faith to Jesus. This is just a formality. This. Do you see how this portion of scripture then functions? After all of that unveiling of Jesus' power, what does God give us? Here in Nazareth, he gives you a reality check, doesn't he? After unveiling all of that power of the Lord Jesus Christ, here he reminds us that such is the wickedness of the human heart. Such is the grip that sin has on on people that quite frankly, people are sometimes just going to stand and hate Jesus. And then let me add to that. You think about this. Those most likely to reject your message about Jesus, they are the people that you love the most. Those most likely to reject your message about Christ are the people you love the most. What does Jesus say here? Only amongst the people he loves. Only amongst, you know, his hometown. Only amongst his, his friends, a prophet without honor. Do you see the point? Familiarity blinds. Familiarity with you. You know, familiarity with, with the gospel, familiarity with the name of, of, of Jesus, it means that, that, that those people that we desire the most accept these things about Jesus Christ, the people we were desperate to, they are most likely to be staunch in their rejection of the gospel. It happened to, it happened to Jesus. And so it will happen to us. What we see here is that we need to prepare as Christians for the truth of gospel, gospel rejection. Okay, a second thing. So we're thinking about lessons that we're learning about witnessing. A second thing that we see here, not just that we've got to prepare for rejection, we've also got to seek gospel partnerships. (laughs) So you've got that, seek gospel partnerships. Now, if you're been with us for the last few months and if you've been with us for the for the sermon series and or if you know your bible well you'll know what happened early on in the book of mark so you know that jesus has called to himself 12 disciples 12 guys and what has he promised them he's promised to make them fishers of fishers of men right would you not agree with me that in the first five uh, chapters of Mark, that's not really materialized, is it? Like, okay, the disciples have followed Jesus, accompanied Jesus. They've maybe, you could even say they've assisted Jesus in certain ways. They've, they've listened to him preach. So far, though, in this gospel, there's not been a sending out of the disciples into the waters, you know, into the ocean of human need. It's not happened yet. But all of that changes as you and I just now enter into that second section that we've got in front of us. Do you see what that is? It's training exercise. 
isn't it? Like in advance of uh, Jesus' ascension or in advance of Pentecost, what does he do? He takes his church, he takes his 12 guys and he sends them out and he gives them a trial run in advance of Pentecost, a trial run at evangelism. Now, this is what I would ask you to note with me. Note the manner in which Jesus sends them out. Like, how does he do it? Like, does he send them out en masse? Like, you guys were playing football on Friday night. It's a big group of guys together playing football. Is that the sort of picture we've got here? It's like a big group of guys sort of coming in, all 12 of them in a village to tell everyone about Jesus. Is it like that? Or is it, is it, is it individual? Like, can you imagine it? You know, Jesus sort of says, right, John, here's the deal. You're going away over at the villages in the east, and I want you by yourself to witness there. Matthew, you take the villages away over in the north. And so, is it like that? What is it? Look at verse 7. Jesus sends the twelve out in pairs, in twos. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that that sounds kind of familiar to you. Send them out in pairs. Is it familiar to you? Because not only is that what happens later on in the Gospels, when Jesus sends out the 70 odd, he sends them out in twos, okay? Where else do we see it? Oh, I'm, I'm very much hoping that you, you know the answer to that. We see it through the book of Acts, don't we? Think about it. Paul and Barnabas sent out as a pair. Isn't that right? And then Barnabas and Mark. Wait a minute, they work as a pair. And then Paul and Silas. Guess what? Paul, Timothy. Could go on and on, but you, you get the idea. Now wait a minute. In light of all of that, in light of what happens later, do you see how Mark chapter 6 functions? Do you see what you've got here? Here, Jesus is establishing the predominant policy for pioneering mission work. Isn't that what's going on? Here, sending out in pairs, starting here, and it's repeated all the way through the New Testament, Jesus is setting out a pattern. He's saying, this is the predominant way that I want my church to attack pioneering mission work. Now, I've got to be very careful with my language, don't I? Like, I'm not saying that this is the only way that the church conducts mission work or evangelism. Even if you think in Acts and you think of Philip in Azotus, like he's a guy by himself and he's going out and he's going out by himself and he's telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. Not saying that this is the only way that it can be conducted. But if you think about it, if you look at the, the, the breadth in the New Testament, you see it. In pairs is the predominance, the most common way that that sort of witnessing and evangelism, pioneering work is done. And you are intelligent people. You can see why it's done in pairs, can you? It's because this is hard graft. Like pioneering mission work is, is tough going. Like Jan and I were having a conversation, Callum, it's probably last week, was it? A couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about a guy called, <coughs> excuse me, I have to cough before I say his name, because I have to pause to make sure I get his name right, Adoniram Judson. 
if I've got that name wrong, if I've got the pronunciation of that name wrong, that's fine. You can speak to me about it afterwards. Adoniram Judson. Now, Adoniram Judson was one of the first missionaries to Burma years ago. Now, here's how it went down for Adoniram Judson. He goes off to Burma essentially by himself. And he is year after year after year after year after year after year of just torture. Like real difficulties and discouragement in his work. Before eventually there's immense blessing at the end of it. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not standing up here and denigrating what was an awesome work for the Lord Jesus Christ. But aren't you with me when you look at that and you think... Wouldn't it have been easier if he'd been working alongside somebody else? Like, wouldn't it have been easier if that guy was supported a bit more? I mean, you're with me, aren't you? Like, working in pairs in Christian work, I mean, it it provides us with encouragement, doesn't it? And there's counsel there. Wow, there can be wisdom from somebody else about where you're going wrong. And there can be real comfort in Christian work. And do you see that? In fact, do you know what? Ecclesiastes... Is it Ecclesiastes 3 or Ecclesiastes 4? What does it say? Two better than one. Why? Because if your friend falls, there's somebody there to pick him up. And you see that, that, that principle of working together, that's beautifully illustrated here, isn't it? Jesus sends out the disciples into the world, but he sends them out in pairs. Now, problem we've got to deal with is that on first glance that's not all that easy to apply is it look at us no like as far as i know there is nobody in here who is going out on a mission trip to burma in the next few weeks if you are speak to me about it because we'll pray for you or maybe try and support you a little bit but as far as i know it's not happening but isn't there a principle that we can take from this Like Jesus in Mark chapter 6 has his people work closely together as witness for him. And wait a minute, can't we do that? Can't we do that a little bit more? I mean, isn't there a principle here of like gospel partnerships? So this is one, this is one I want to give you to think about this week. And I would ask you to pray about this. See what we're talking about here. Do you have that in your life? Like really and properly do you have it? Is there actually somebody in your life that you speak to about your witnessing? Like maybe somebody close to you that that you can be honest and say, do you know what? I'm not sharing the gospel with anyone. (laughs) I've got to hold my hand up. Will you help me? Will you pray? Like somebody that you can talk about the real just utter discouragements of the fact that you have tried to share and you keep feeling that it's failing. Have you got somebody you speak to about that? Somebody you can even share in the joys of, I did have a conversation and I actually this week did speak to somebody about Jesus. Do you have that? If not, can I, can I say to you as a congregation, please, please seek that out. Like, seek someone. Maybe it'll be your mentoring partner for many of you. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a close friend that you've got in the congregation. But somebody that you're speaking to, not just about yourself. And not just about, I don't know how it is with your soul. Although that is important. But somebody you're talking to about how you're witnessing for Christ. 
Because what we're seeing in Mark chapter 6 is not just we must witness. We are seeing here that there is great benefit if we are speaking to somebody else about our witnessing for Jesus. So we seek gospel partnerships. A third lesson that we've got in Mark chapter 6 is that we cling to gospel riches. So we cling to gospel riches. My wife and I, excuse me, when we go on holiday, are the quintessential uh, pack everything except the kitchen sink type people, you know. Like when we're going away in the car, <laughs> the boot will be packed. Even if we don't need it, we're taking the roof box. And it will be jam-packed with stuff that we are never going to use. But it is coming. It is coming just in case. Because you never know. What about the disciples? Like, they're, they are being called to go on this big journey. Like, they're being called at this point to go far and to go wide with the gospel. What is it that they are instructed and commanded to take? You see it? Like, surely what grabs you here is just how little they are instructed to take. Look at the, look at how Jesus begins verse 8. He so what he says at the beginning of this phrase there prepares us for what's coming, doesn't he? Because he says, guys, take nothing except and what does he go on to say take nothing in this journey except a staff and a pair of sandals that's it and just in case the sort of disciples are saying what Jesus what's a staff and sandals Jesus says no no like I'm saying to you you're not even to take a little bit of food now I, I don't even want you to take a handful of coins for this Like, see that rucksack you've got? Leave it behind. Take absolutely nothing. Do you not find that kind of remarkable? Like, they're being sent out, but they're being told to take next to nothing for the journey. Now, I I think if we dissect that, there's a there's a couple of reasons we can see why why Jesus has said this. First of all, think about it from the point of view of the disciples. Don't you think that this command to take nothing with them, don't you think it would have bred a certain dependence upon God? Like, you see what I, 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 you see what I mean, don't you? Like, what do these disciples know? They know that they are being sent out into a hostile world. Did you notice, did you notice that they were with Jesus in Nazareth? Did you see that at the beginning there? Like they were in Nazareth with Jesus. They saw, wait a minute, his hometown, his own people reject him. So they know that they are going out into this incredibly hostile world. And they're going out there without even enough money to buy some bread. You can bet your bottom dollar, what? As they go out together in pairs, they're praying as they walk. Aren't they? Aren't they praying, Lord, would you help us here? We are hungry here. And we do not know what is coming. Lord, would you please? You see, it breeds this dependence on God, this absence of stuff. Then, tell you what to do, flick it on its head. 
think about it, this instruction, from the point of view the people, the disciples would meet. Now, can you imagine it? Like, don't you think the poverty of the disciples, the fact that they're cruising into town with absolutely nothing, don't you think added a certain sort of weight to what the disciples had to say? Like, just put yourself in that position. In come the disciples into the town, into the village, with nothing. Like, they're so focused on this message about Jesus that they haven't brought any provision at all Like, wouldn't that infuse the preaching with a certain degree of gravitas, weight, importance, a sense of urgency, wouldn't it? Staff and sandals. Okay, here's a problem with this. We rush to apply that. We rush to apply it. Some of you will have heard of a guy called, I'm looking to my American friends here, some of you will have heard of a guy called Creeflo Dollar. You'll have noticed I coughed before saying that name as well. Creeflo Dollar. Some of you have heard of him, some of you won't. Creeflo, what a great name that is. Uh, Creeflo Dollar is uh, an American TV evangelist guy. One of those guys, okay? Now, Creeflo Dollar had a plan. What he wanted to do was extend his ministry from America to have a worldwide ministry. Okay? What do you do if you're going to do that? Like, if you want to extend your, <laughs> you want to extend your ministry worldwide, what do you do? Well, if you're Creeflo Dollar, what you do is you demand the purchase of a $65 million private jet to facilitate your worldwide missionary endeavor. Staff and sandals. <laughs> $65 million jet. And we rushed away. We rushed to apply this to situations like that. Here's the problem. You're a Christian. You've been called to go to the towns and the villages. You have been called to go to the towns and villages with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? This, wait a minute. This applies to you and me as much as it does to, to, to any other person, any other child of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, understand this. It is not a call to asceticism. You get that, don't you? Like Jesus here is not saying, okay, from now on, all Christians, they're only allowed one pair of shoes and they're not allowed to have a bag. You know, it's, Jesus is not saying that. What is he saying? Surely what we're seeing in Mark 6 is a call for you and I to be very, very careful about our approach to wealth. Very careful about our approach to the material things of this life. Isn't that what you've got in Mark 6? And isn't that a hard truth? I mean, it means it forces us to be incredibly honest with ourselves. Like, if you have a weakness, and if you know in your heart that you've got a weakness for material things, then you have to understand, you have to be prayerful about the fact that that compromises your witness for Christ. Do you see it? It does. I mean, you know that to be true, don't you? I mean, how are you going to convince somebody that your hope is in the riches of Christ Jesus? 
How are you going to persuade people of the beauty of the riches of the gospel if as you speak to them, your whole life is weighed down by the concerns of the wealth of this world? Like what we see in Mark 6 is an important lesson. We are clinging to, it's okay to be wealthy, we're not saying that, but what do we cling to? We cling to gospel riches. As we go out and tell people the, the great things, the truth, we cling to the riches of our God. So we've seen three lessons. We're just going to close with a very quick fourth lesson that we see here in Mark 6. And it's a tough one. Because we learn here that we are to move on from gospel opponents. Did you hear that? We are to move on from gospel opponents. So we've seen how the disciples are sent out. They're sent out in twos. (coughs) Excuse me. We've seen what they're supposed to take. (coughs) Very little. Staff, sandal, that's about it. What are they supposed to do? Twelve guys going out in pairs. What is it that Jesus is actually asking them to do? Do you see it? Well, look at the last phrase. Part of what they're supposed to do is engage in acts of sort of mercy and compassion. Like that's definitely a side to it. Do you see it? What does it say? It says, you know, heal the sick guys. Cast out demons. So there's an element of sort of ministry and mercy and compassion. So you've got that. Now, fine. More critically, we get to the heart of what Jesus calls these disciples to do in verse 12. So, Everyone, I would ask you to look at verse 12. If you get nothing else, look at verse 12. What were the disciples called to do? They went out. What did they do? They preached that people should repent. If you were asked later on this afternoon by your minister, what was the subject of today's sermon? I would hope you would say, well, it was about the purpose of our lives. The purpose of our lives as Christians. Do you see that verse 12, that is the purpose of our lives. That is the task at hand. They went out and preached that people need to repent. Now, I know that many of you know this phrase. You ready for it? It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You heard of him? The names, man. St. Francis of Assisi. He said this. He said, preach the gospel and use words if you have to. You heard that phrase? Preach the gospel and use words if you have to. I doubt that there is another phrase that has consigned more people to hell than that. We have to understand that we are not telling people the gospel unless we are telling people the gospel. That we are not telling people what God requires for salvation unless we are telling people to do what? To turn from their sin and to turn to him. They went out and they preached that people had to repent. 
That's what Jesus wanted from his people. And if you were shocked by how lightly the disciples had to travel, you're probably going to combust and just explode just now when you focus on what Jesus says about those who reject that message. Do you see what he says? What does he say to the disciples? He says, see if people reject the idea of repentance. What do you do? You shake the dust off your feet. Isn't that shocking? You see what that is? That is a gesture of utter rejection. You know, the Jews coming back from Gentile lands in a sort of painstaking way, they would get rid of all the filth, all the grime, all the dust off their feet, you know? Get rid of it. They're Gentiles in the same way. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you shake the dust off your feet. Why? That's a way of classing those people, not just as stubborn to Christ, that's a way of classing them as utterly lost. Isn't it shocking? Isn't it shocking? And isn't it something that we very rarely talk about in the life of the church? That we're all for perseverance and evangelism. What do we do every Sunday night in that room? We pray for the lost. Who do we pray for? Who do we pray for? We pray for the same people. What's your horizon in your evangelism? Who are you thinking about? Same people all the time, isn't it? And, 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 and don't get me wrong, there is a place, there must be a place for perseverance in evangelism. It's biblical, it's right. But more often you and I need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. That if you and I have shared the good news with a loved one, If we've done that, and if they seem to have understood, but they seem to utterly reject that out of hand, there is occasion for us to move on. There is occasion, even if it is temporary, even if it is momentary, even if it's just for a spell, there is an occasion to move on and for us to focus on telling other people how they can be saved from their sin. Now, we've seen lessons here from God about witnessing. I want to end like this. Here's a thought for you. This room, this Sunday, 21st of February, right now, there are people in here who stand in this rejection of Christ. Isn't that a thought? There are people right now in this very place who stand to face that exclusion that is hinted at and spoken of in Mark chapter 6. I want to speak to you. And I just want you to see, I want to reiterate the opportunity for you is limited. You see that here, don't you? Like, not just in the way that Jesus tells his people to move on. You see it in what Jesus does. He goes to Nazareth. He tells his people about salvation. And what does he do? He goes. He is only in Nazareth for a blink of an eye. Don't you see the opportunity is limited? And I would ask you this morning to consider that. In fact, I would ask you, To consider the good news of salvation in Christ in light of that urgency. See, the truth is that that 
God requires so little of you for salvation. Jesus Christ has done everything. Christ has done it all. You're seeking to live a good life. Christ has done it for you. He's also died that day, taking the punishment for sin. He's done it all. And all that is required now is that you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and you turn to him for the forgiveness of your sin. Will you consider that in light of the fact that opportunity is limited? Friends, that's the message of the church. Isn't that the message of the church? Isn't it? People of God. So what do we do with that message? We go out there, don't we? We go and tell people, this week we resolve to share the good news of salvation with the people that we love. We expect rejection, but we're going to tell people, Jesus, we're going to tell people that that tomb is empty, aren't we? Let's go. Let's go. And let's begin a new chapter in speaking of Christ. Let's pray.